So you might wonder what is this all about? So this has to do mostly, I must say, with the historiography of the Italian Enlightenment, which is an historiography I deeply admire and I heavily rely on, on this historiography, actually, in my scholarship. Mm-hmm. Um, however, I think it has an aspect which I'd like to change, that is that it has mostly focused on the intellectual rather than the practical roots of the Enlightenment and political economic reforms. And I think it has not highlighted enough the centrality of the material and tangible sides of the Enlightenment and its reforms. Welcome to a new episode of New Work in Intellectual History. Today I'm talking to Dr. Lavinia Madaluno about her research on scientific practices and political economic ideas in Enlightenment Milan. Lavinia is an early modern historian and historian of science. So far, her main research interest lay in the role of scientific knowledge production in the realization of ideas of wealth, state and society in Europe and the Enlightenment. She currently works as non-tenured assistant professor on an ERC project at Ca Foscari University in Venice in Italy. My name is Selma Sondan and I'm a master's student of intellectual history at the University of St. Andrews. Thank you for listening. All right, so um, welcome Lavinia. Thank you for taking the time today. And Uh, thank um, you for having me. As I understand, you are currently working on revising the manuscript for your first monograph, which is preliminarily entitled Science and Political Economy in Enlightened Milan, 1760s until 1815. To start us off, could you tell us what the book will be about? Thank you so much for this question. So the book is going to be about science and political economy in the Enlightenment, and more specifically, I want to look at the process through which political economic ideas materialized in scientific practices in the Duchy of Milan from the late 18th century Habsburg monarchy to the early 19th century Napoleonic era. Uh, So in this book, I want to combine methodologies from the history of science and intellectual history. And uh, I'm going to look at a number of case studies based uh, on archival research, which I have conducted mostly in Milan. Uh, These case studies uh, are about bread making, uh, hydraulics, uh, natural history, and mineralogical surveys, but also techniques of saltpeter production. And the book wants to situate the Duccio Milan at the center of European transfers of political economic knowledge on the one hand, and practices on the other. So I hope to be able to contribute to the historiography of the European Enlightenment, uh, but also to a broad audience of intellectual historians, uh, but also historians of science uh, uh, interested perhaps in exploring uh, the interconnections between ideas and technological practices in the early modern period. The Duché of Milan uh, was not isolated in Europe uh, and in Italy in the Enlightenment. Uh, it was rather a place of encounters of, um, of knowledge, of models of political economy, such as physiocracy, cameralism, and the Genovese school, as well as uh, ideas coming, for, for, for example, from the Gournay circle, uh, as well as scientific practices applied to the making of reforms. 
Thank you for that. Um, so when dealing with political economic ideas, the question that I always ask myself is, well, how do you really define political economy? So <clears throat> while I I know that there is a ton of definitions of it, um, I wanted to ask what your understanding of political economy is that the book is based on. Uh, so thank you so much for this question. I usually appeal to um, the definition of political economy that was given by the famous historian of Italian enlightenment, Franco Venturi. Uh, he defines political economy as the science of a, di a discipline characterized by the presence of normative and descriptive aspects. So um, he says that uh, political economy uh, aimed at identifying and describing economic phenomena like uh, the way wealth was created, the way goods circulated, the mechanism of trade um, and commercial exchanges, but also the formation of price. On the other hand, uh, Venturi focused on the fact that political economy was meant to provide the basis for public intervention in the above matters. So it was meant to shape policies. And these two aspects that he focuses on actually emerge in the writings of two of the most renowned political economists in 18th century Milan, Cesare Beccaria and Pietro Verri. Cesare Beccaria actually taught political economy or better public economy. And he held a chair in public economy at the Scuole Palatine. These were Milanese high education schools to become civil servants. And Beccaria left us the outcome of his lecturing activity, the elements on public economy in Italian Elementi d'Economia Pubblica, which we wrote uh, at the end of the 1760s. Of course, we mostly know Cesare Beccaria for his crimes and punishments, this book which advocated the abolition of the death penalty, while Verri, on the other end, is less known to international scholarship, even though he was involved in the making of policies. And the reason why I chose to focus on them is because they are two of the major thinkers in enlightened Milan. And they did not only write about political economy, but they also practiced political economy. So they participated in the making of reforms under Maria Teresa of Austria, under Joseph II, and they covered the key roles in the main institutions of the Duchy. Uh, Beccaria and Verri are, of course, the, not the only political economists, as you might imagine, uh, who contributed to the making of reforms and to developing the field of itself of political economy. Uh, but of course, I mean, for the purpose of this interview, I am going only to address them and very briefly. So I'm just going to give you some ends to how they conceived of political economy. Mm -hmm. As to Beccaria, uh, he defined political economy or as he calls it, public economy as a, an art, an art of increasing and preserving the wealth of the country and to use it in the best way possible. So Beccaria defines wealth as the abundance of not only necessary, but also pleasurable things which he thinks could be extracted from the soil through the heart of agriculture or produced by the ends of human beings, for example, in the process of manufacturing or exchanged through commerce. So Beccaria interprets the teaching of public economy as the understanding of those universal laws which regulate human interactions in society and mediates between individual passions and state control. With regard to Verri, in his uh, meditation, in his thoughts on political economy, which are also written at the end of the 1760s, 
The civil servant maintained a political economy served the purpose of freeing the members of society from strong legislation. And strong legislation is seized as a danger uh, to the creative nature and entrepreneurial spirit of citizens. And um, this, uh, this spirit could be seen, um, could be expressed in the context of agriculture and manufacturing. And he believed that, that a good legislator would manage matters regarding political economy only with indirect rather than direct laws. So the legislator should not exert force on the people, but rather offer guidance and motivation. So it should do its best uh, to realize civil liberty represented by the condition in which private property and personal safety are guaranteed. And I'm, I'm sorry that I can't go into depth with regard to the affiliation of Beccaria and Veri's ideas on political economy, but I'd like to add that both Beccaria and Veri relied on the Genovesian tradition of political economy. This is the, that is the tradition of Antonio Genovesi, who held the first Italian chair in public economy at the University of Naples in 1754. Uh, and in particular, the appeal to Genovesi praise of commerce, which they saw as a key to the realization of public happiness. Yeah, I mean, I, I presume you can go into endless depth about uh, defining political economy. <laughs> um, but Yeah, uh, probably. <laughs> But you did, as your definition um, is taken from 18th century Milan, you've already touched on a couple of the um, points of historical context, which leads me to my next question. Uh, why did you choose the time frame 1760s to 1815? And could you outline the historical context or maybe more the key historical facts that one needs to know when reading your book? Yeah, sure. Um, so the time frame I chose uh, is that of the Habsburg reforms of Maria Theresa of Austria, especially in the 1760s, Joseph uh, II, so covering the 1780s, 1790, and Leopold II until uh, 1792. But I also wanted to cover a bit the time of transition to the Napoleonic period with the creation of the Cisalpina Republic. Uh, in 1796 uh, and the following Napoleonic Republics. So um, starting from Maria Theresa of Austria, um, she attempted to reorganize the Duchy of Milan public finances um, in the wake of the Seven Years' War. So she relaunched the project for a cadastral register which prompted investments in agriculture improvements. And uh, she wanted to actually realize also through the cadastral a more ecosystem of taxation uh, she worked towards uh, creating a separation between the jurisdictions of the church and the jurisdiction of the state. And she also acted to centralize public administration. And also, um, it's very central to my research, actually, she reformed the system of education and especially the University of Pavia and established a new Ministry of Finance and Economic Affairs. And both things happened in 1765. Um, then like in uh, 1776, she also founded uh, a Milanese scientific academy, the Società Patriotica or Patriotic Society, whose goal was to improve agriculture and manufacturing. 
Maria Theresa reforms also went in the direction of uh, increasing commercial liberalizations uh, um, and also reorganizing the system of grain provisioning. And actually, these measures will be also continued under Joseph II and Leopold II. So jumping a bit forward, um, the beginning of the hostility between France and Austria, which followed the French revolutionary years, uh, and the transformation of the Duchy of Milan in the Napoleonic Cisalpina Republic, that is the first Napoleonic uh, uh, Republic, um, did not create a real discontinuity with monarchical reforms. Uh, rather, I mean, I think um, this is very central to my book that uh, Napoleonic republics, uh, uh, which followed until 1815, built on the legacy of uh, these like monarchical like uh, mm, institutions and reforms. Mm -hmm. uh, I must say that institutionally, institutionally, sorry, monarchical institutions were substituted by republican ones. However, these now republican institutions engaged all reformers and naturalists, especially in the constitution of the new republic. So they reappropriated and resignified different forms of expertise which had developed under the old regime. And they saw them in a new sort of republican light. And especially the last chapter of my book uh, shows precisely this process by following a chemist to work as a mineralogical surveyor under Joseph II and then ends up putting his expertise at the service of the Napoleonic republics. Hmm. So these are the key elements that you, you need to keep in mind yeah. um, when looking at my book. So on the one side of the, the reforms uh, under Maria Theresa Hostia, Joseph II, uh, Joseph, uh, uh, Joseph II and Leopold uh, II, and then the transition to the Napoleonic uh, republics. Mm -hmm. Fantastic, thank you. Um, before we go a bit more into detail about methodology, um, I wanted to ask about your kind of inspiration or motivation. So what has led you to write this book? Is it is it connected to your PhD dissertation um, at Cambridge or where does it come from? Yeah, I mean, this is uh, the outcome of my PhD, but um, now a few years have passed, so I changed a few things. Uh, especially in terms of structure. So originally I wanted to focus the entire PhD on agricultural practices because I wanted to assess the practical impact of the physiocrats and the physiocratic school on the way agriculture was made in the Duchy of Milan. But eventually that uh, wasn't the case. So I prefer to include practices of different kinds from hydraulics to bread making, from practices to harvest and refine, saltpeter to mineralogical surveys. And this is because physiocracy wasn't the only tradition that the Duchy of Milan institutions and uh, civil servants engaged with. So if we looked into practices, we find, for example, uh, the cameralism also made some appearances, often in the disguise of scientific practices, since uh, I must say that cameralist texts, such as the Sonnenfeds, for example, were translated into Italian only in the 1780s. Genovese was very present as, well, present as well, as much as the Gournay Circle and its place for commerce. So it was like an intersection of models of political economy mm -hmm. uh, and as well as practices which helped to realize them. Mm -hmm. um, and, and when you made this kind of change in framework, um, which research questions did you then set out to answer with, with the current version of your book? 
So uh, the first question I wanted to answer is about the role played by uh, lesser known naturalists, science amateurs, uh, bakers, chemists, clergymen, and instrument makers in producing political, economic, as well as scientific knowledge in the Duchy of Milan. So more specifically, uh, I was and I'm still interested in uh, inquiring into the strategies that these actors developed in answering to answer one of the central questions of 18th century political economy, uh, that is to follow Beccaria's ideas on political economy, how to preserve and increase the state wealth through the use and manipulation of natural resources. Mm -hmm. So this is my first question. My second question is how specific practices, and we're talking about land reclamation techniques uh, through the use of pumps, uh, ways of milling grain, or for example, mineralogical surveys of abandoned mines. So what can these practices tell us about the circulation of models of political economy and forms or style of administration and governability, such as physiocracy, communalism, and the Genovese school, which I've just mentioned. Mm -hmm. So to be clearer, I feel I should add, uh, as you probably already know, that these are never monolithic bodies of knowledge, so one of the difficulties I have encountered is to trace back the political economic genealogy, uh, if you can allow me this uh, expression, <laughs> of certain practices which can be related to these lines of political economic reasoning, mm. but non not exclusively in the sense that these practices that were resignified and reappropriated over time to ask answer specific and often very local political economic questions. So to make a couple of examples, think about the practices put into place to favor small instead of large land holdings, which can be characterized as anti-physiocratic traditionally, or to go on the other side of the spectrum, economic milling, which was a practice which had been appropriated by physiocracy back in the 1750s in France, but which was developed under Louis XIV, uh, so much before physiocracy appeared as a line of political economic thought. So the function of economic milling, for example, was to produce more flour than a normal milling practice, given the same quantity of grain. And some naturalists and scientific practitioners tried to import it and adapt it in Milan in the 1780s to sort of solve the problem of grain uh, provisioning. Mm -hmm. So it was like a practice that was used to answer political economic problem. Yeah. Um, and in the in the intro uh, of the interview, you already said that uh, your aim was to combine methodologies from the history of science and intellectual history. And you just mentioned genealogy, which is probably an intellectual historian's most favorite word. Um, so... Can I ask, how did you then approach your research questions and in what way did you combine the two methodologies? Thank you for, for this question. So one of my intentions with this book is precisely to shift the perspective from the history of ideas of political economy to the history of scientific practices and basically to include a discourse on practices as an innovative methodological stance to offer a more articulated understanding on how political economic ideas circulated, were appropriated in Europe and Milan between the late 18th century and early 19th centuries. 
So what I want to clarify, especially because, you know, this is a series of interviews about intellectual history, is that this book does not reject the history of ideas, especially with regard to the genesis. Uh, again, you know, we talk about genealogies of 18th century political economy is diffusion and appropriations. So I rather want to embrace and endorse the attention that the history of ideas and intellectual history have paid to the study of political economic texts, of the diffusion, of their circulation, of the translation. Uh, but however, I also want on the other end to use methodologies from the history of science and especially from the sociology of scientific knowledge so I want to place a bit of em emphasis on the position of individual actors, social groups, institutions, and of the articulation of discursive, experimental, and material practices in contingent social settings. So you might wonder, what is this all about? So this has to do mostly, I must say, with the historiography of the Italian Enlightenment, which is an historiography I deeply admire, and I heavily rely on, on this historiography, actually, in my scholarship. Mm -hmm. um, however, I think it has an aspect which I'd like to change, that is that it has mostly focused on the intellectual rather than the practical roots of the Enlightenment and political economic reforms. And I think it has not highlighted enough the centrality of the material and tangible sides of the Enlightenment and its reforms. Mm -hmm. And, and how does that work practically? You said you wanted to um, kind of trace the tangible um, ways that, that lesser known naturalists worked. So which sources are you drawing on then? I imagine they're quite hard to find. <laughs> Yeah, I, 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 I used a lot of printed text on political economy and agricultural practices, but I also be looking at manuscript letters of several naturalists and civil servants, and also unpublished archival material concerning, for example, the activities of scientific academies, as well as reports of geographical surveys which were carried out in the territories of the Duchy of Milan. So I think it's uh, this combination of sources that uh, is going to evidence the central argument of the book that uh, precisely, as I just said, like in the previous question, challenges the vision of ideas as these disembodied entities, rather claiming that ideas can be conveyed only by material practices embedded with economic and social political meanings. And the uh, material practices, if I can just uh, dive into that a little more, um, you've mentioned bread making before, you've talked about a case study of a chemist, um, which other case studies were you drawing on for your results and uh, yeah, which scientific practices did you examine? So actually, I mean, the monograph itself is uh, structured around scientific practices. Um, um, so I have a chapter on bread making techniques, uh, then another one on land reclamation and hydraulic projects, um, uh, another chapter on natural history and mineralogical surveys, uh, uh, and then another, um, like a final chapter on chemical studies on saltpeter. Uh, then there are like some naturalists which appear, who appear in my monograph who were like um, 
building machines to make pasta to like prepare doughs for like bread making so it's like a it's wide range <laughs> of practices and for example like in the chapter on bread making um, I talk about how the French chemist uh, Parmentier plans and machines for a potato-based bread were imported in Milan in the 1780s thanks to the efforts and the mediation of uh, another chemist who acted as a go-between. Mm-hmm. And this other chemist was the Milanese Marcillo Landriani. Uh, but for example, in this chapter, I also discuss about economic milling, which I just mentioned, uh, la mutue économique, uh, which also comes from France, but it has a different affiliation. In the chapter on land reclamation, I discuss a project of land redistribution, which was operated through the employment of a water pump, which would have transformed marshes into productive lands. And this water pump was devised by a scientific practitioner. And in the chapter on mines, for example, I look at the survey of abandoned mines, uh, which was performed uh, by yet another chemist in the 1770s. And I connected with the broader problem of relaunching the mining sector of the Duccio Milan to solve the deficit of metals for coinage. So I've selected these practices on the basis of their originality, but uh, more than the question of originality, I'm interested in using them as source and forms of evidence to highlight how the study of scientific practices can help us develop a more nuanced and complex perspective on the role that materiality and the discourse on materiality had uh, in uh, the articulation, the dissemination and the enforcement of political economic ideas in the Duccio Milan at the time of the enlightenment. And I've also chosen them uh, to clarify the multiple ways uh, by which institutions and individuals represented science and its practices in the context of discourses on political economy, the Enlightenment, uh, national governability and state management, and as conditions for the attainment of public happiness and utility. Mm -hmm. Uh, Let me um, pick up that thought. Looking at this vast range of case studies, I'm seriously impressed. Um, How, what did you find then? How did political economic ideas materialize in these scientific practices? So that's a very interesting question that, so A, I think forces me to explain what I mean by practice, and B, makes me think that I should be a bit more explicit in relation to what practices did to models of political economy and policies. So as to the first point, uh, that is the more general meaning of practice, Uh, I consider it as any form of material engagement of human beings in uh, uh, social and institutional settings with natural resources, objects, machines, natural specimens, uh, where such engagements uh, resulted in the production of knowledge and its applications. So I want to conceive of practices as tools to answer political economic questions. These questions were really, really basic. Uh, so the, the were down to hard questions, such as how can I produce more flour given the same quantity of grain? Or how can we cope as a society with famines? Mm-hmm. What kind of crop shall we introduce in making bread? Or yet, for example, in another context, that is the context of the land management, which is quite important uh, in terms of reforms in the 18, uh, in 18th century uh, Milan, 
how can we institutions make sure that farmers invest in the lands or are large land holdings better than small ones in terms of agricultural productivities? Uh, so these are the kind of, of questions uh, which I think uh, sort of practices tried to answer. Yeah. And coming to the second point, my assertion in this book is that the making and enforcement of political economic ideas into policies could not be possible without the mediation of scientific practices. So what do I mean by, by mediation? I mean that after being approved, policies had to be tested. And this test involved not just institutions, but also practitioners, such as mechanics, mm -hmm. artisans, bakers, and land surveyors. And it was mostly these figures who have been kept out of the picture of 18th century political economy who built machines to grind grain in a physiocratic fashion, or the drained marshes to realize Joseph II plans of economic improvement, surveyed uh, mines as a way to embrace the cameralist conceptions of the state and wrote chemistry manuals when we go to the Napoleonic period as a celebration of Republican values and models of uh, production. Mm -hmm. So I, I hope I, I sort of replied to your very interesting question. It's, it's actually at the core of my, of my book, methodologically speaking. Yeah, um, I'm glad to hear, of course. <laughs> um, and, and I want to build on that too. Um, so these were kind of your findings and what are then the main conclusions that you can draw from what you found? And do they have any implications for how we understand the Italian Enlightenment more broadly? So um, I think there is a general first takeaway, um, which I hope readers will, will get from this book, and a second one that is instead a bit more specific. Mm -hmm. So the first one consists in the fact that we need, I think, as 18th century scholars to keep creating a bridge between the abstract discourses on political economy and reforms and the practical realization. So basically we need to emphasize more the importance of the material side of enlightened reformism. And if we can agree that bread making practices, mineralogical surveys, uh, techniques of sapita production and the water pumps to reclaim lands and any other practical activity really, these were not the ultimate goals of governmental and intellectual debates in 18th century Milan. Since these goals, however, as we all know, were public happiness and public utility, but however, the means used to realize these big goals were an integral part of what the Enlightenment reforms were about. Mm -hmm. So think about it, all those grand ideas of public happiness, uh, of self-sufficiency, at the center of most discourses of political economy of either physiocratic or cameralistic inspiration. So this could not be fully realized without the aid of material scientific practices. So this is the point I want to make, which I think goes beyond the, the, the area, the, the territory which I'm examining and the specific case study of the Duchy of Milan. But however, this point uh, takes me to my second point, uh, that is more specific and more related to the Milanese Enlightened reforms and its main figures. So I believe that all forms of 18th century reformism and the practical element 
But nevertheless, the question is whether civil servants and political economists were involved in the making of reforms and in practical matters. And that is not always the case. If you think, for example, of like uh, uh, the philosopher, but uh, it is definitely true for the case of the Duchy of Milan, uh, whose civil servants uh, uh, were Cesare Beccaria, Pietro Verri, who I have evoked uh, initially, uh, of course, not only them, uh, but I mean, these people were involved in questions uh, uh, such as, again, bread making, the cadastro register, the management of mines, mine surveys, and also projects of land redistribution and the teaching of agricultural subjects. Uh, so there was this, this bridging, you know, like from <laughs> the ideas, uh, the development of ideas of political economy and economic, uh, political economic treatises and the practice of political economy uh, on the other end uh, through uh, science and scientific practices. Yeah, thank you. Um, we are coming towards the end of the interview, but um, I have a more uh, general question to the the focus on actors who have been kind of kept out of the picture, you said, and who have not been fe fe featured in historiography so far. Um, would you say that this makes your book a um, history from below? Well, I wish I could reply with a yes, but <laughs> I would say that probably that's not the case. So I think that my book goes um, some way in this direction. So the characters in my chapter have definitely, as you said, not been at the center of traditional narratives about political economic reforms in the Milanese Enlightenment, but they've been actually marginal to such narratives. But on the other hand, they still had very strong connections with the highest ranks of Milanese institutions and with the central government in Vienna. Okay. So for example, the chemists who surveyed the mines of the Duchio Milan was supported by the plenipotentiary minister of Habsburg Lombardy, Count Firmian, and the practitioner who built the pump to draw water from the marshes around the Lake Como, acted thanks to the patronage of Accuse II. So even though the figures might not be obvious or known to intellectual historians working on political economy, um, and indeed, I mean, I have some of these actors that you mentioned that, you know, could be representative of the history from below. For example, I have a baker, I have a carpenter who are featuring in my chapter on economic milling. Uh, but uh, I don't think these are enough to, to qualify and to define sort of my work as a history from below. I mean, maybe yeah. that's the next step. I hope I can go into that direction. Also, probably the sources uh, I would have used would have been different. And, mm -hmm. and those are indeed more difficult to find, as you mentioned yeah. in the beginning. Yeah, thanks for clarifying that. Um... One last question about the book. I don't know if you can answer it, but um, can you already reveal anything uh, to the audience about when and where your monograph will be published? It might be of interest. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can only say that it's a British press and that's where I would like it to appear and to be read. However, I need to be very clear uh, with, you, with you and with the audience, who, like the people who will uh, listen to this interview. I do not have a contract yet, so I, I, I prefer not to disclose it. 
Mm -hmm. uh, I'm finishing the preparation of the manuscript um, and they formally invited me to submit the manuscript uh, already a while ago. So they read the proposal, they reviewed it positively, uh, but I must say I got a bit sidetracked because of, of course, the pandemic that probably, you know, didn't help. Yeah. <laughs> and I am not the only one, I'm sure academics, we academics are all in the same, on the same boat. Uh, but I also had a series of very short-term uh, short contracts uh, on different projects that took me a bit far away from these, uh, these monographs and yeah. probably would be the basis for my second monograph, yeah. <laughs> which is like, yeah, first a series of articles and then probably another monograph in a while. Yeah, fantastic. I mean, uh, as soon as there's more information about this, maybe we can do an update on the on the web page or something so that people will know. But thanks. Yeah, maybe, maybe the, it, it will take some time. It will take some years, I believe. But uh, thank you. Okay, so thank you for for giving us so much information about your book. Um, I'm really looking forward to its publication and to reading it. Um, and to just shift the focus as, as kind of a final question, I understand that you're currently also shifting your research interests a bit more towards um, 17th century Italy. And um, I would, wanted to ask, what are you working on at the moment and what has motivated you to this shift in, in centuries, basically? <laughs> Uh, so at the moment I work as postdoc or non-tenured assistant professor. That is the way that uh, my contract is translated into English yeah. on uh, an ERC project uh, that is called The Water Cultures of Italy, 1500-1900, mm -hmm. and which is led by Professor David Gentilcore at the Department of Humanities at Foscari in Venice. So uh, in this project, I work on how medical knowledge regarding the quality of waters and air was produced in relation to land management, and in particular, in relation to the production of rice and cheese in the Spanish Habsburg Duchy of Milan, so in the 17th century mostly. And I'm interested in looking how different cultures of knowledge, engineering and medicine especially, interacted in the re resolution of social conflicts and in medical problems, uh, in the resolution of medical problems, uh, such as the influence of stagnant waters on air and the human body, according to uh, a neo-hippocratic medical paradigm, which was revitalized from the 16th century onwards. So I decided to focus on these more environmental questions because while I was working exactly on my PhD and then the book on political economy in the 18th century, I realized something perhaps very banal, but nonetheless of historical importance, that no political economic plan could be advanced without a thorough knowledge of local natural resources, mm. such as water, for example, but also something less tangible, such as air. And I just wanted to explore this aspect for an earlier period. And I must also say that in, in my PhD, I also wanted to focus a part on public health and the reform of public health. But then that part didn't happen to end up in the PhD, but yeah. I had it written. And so, you know, that was actually the start of my, 
my current project. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it dates back many years ago, actually, <laughs> if I think about it. Um, so no, thank you for, 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 these, uh, for this last question, but actually thank you for all these questions. Um, I think they were very, very interesting. And um, I mean, they allowed me to pick uh, on some specific aspects of my book, um, book project and, and manuscript. And I hope that uh, I will submit it in the autumn. I, yeah. really, I really should submit it in the autumn. Yeah. Yeah, I'm thank looking you so much. forward uh, to updates on that. And thank you very much for taking all this time to answer my questions and to go into detail about them. I found it really fascinating to talk to you. And um, I wish you best of luck with the current project and with the uh, revising of your manuscript. And I'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much.